I'm in Luke chapter 13. We're going to be in verse 1. If you're a guest, then uh, please know that we're just teaching the Bible one book at a time, verse by verse. If you know my personality, I've been sitting under the, the mentorship of Jack Hayford the last five years. Jack Hayford wanted us to know right up front that he's not a rah-rah guy. Well, you need to know I am a rah-rah guy. And to be teaching through the Bible verse by verse is a total step of faith for me because I'd rather come in and, and sell you with some kind of story and hook you and catch you and then another story to end with to send you home. But we're just trusting God to speak through His Word, believing that His Word is enough. Get Michael Descoli out of the way and let's let God uh, do the work. And as we come into chapter 13, we're uh, around six months from the crucifixion of Christ, still heading that direction. There's a group of people gathered around Jesus who again are trying to trap him with controversial issues. Today's question is a political question concerning, get this, radical Galileans. And the reason that I tell you this is because I am blown away by how relevant this teaching is to what was experienced in, in Norway this weekend. And, and I just believe God's timing is all over this. And let me just say two things that are in the news right now. First off, Campus Crusade for Christ is still about Christ. So don't let the media convince you they're compromising. The name crew is only to be more relative on, on campus, okay? So please know that. Secondly, this fellow who opened fire, who is a right-wing, uh, pol- uh, uh, as far as political persuasion goes, and a supposed Christian is not bearing fruit that's in keeping with my understanding of what it means to be a Christian. So what I'm telling you is if you want more from your faith than the 85% of Americans who say they are Christian, then the teaching that we're getting as we walk through this, this is, is, is the real deal. What it means to be a Christ follower because that man this weekend became a scandalon and I am praying against Satan using this opportunity. And anyway, Satan meant, meant it for harm. I'm believing for God to use it for a greater good. Amen? Yeah. All right. So verse one, uh, Luke chapter 13. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans, about whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. This man here is Pontius Pilate. If you haven't heard of Pontius Pilate, he's a very important figure in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus actually brought before him. His wife told him, don't take any stand against this man. But Pilate didn't have a spine at all. So he just told the people that he washed, he would wash his hands of this Jesus and therefore he hands them over to the people. He's a Roman governor. He's appointed by Rome to oversee the people of Judah, which is the southern uh, region of, of Israel. He's largely despised by the Jews that he oversees because of his total disregard for their religion. He's, he's posting flags all over the holy city and these flags have images of Caesar. So it's about glorifying this man Caesar rather than glorifying the living God, which uh, this, the holy city Jerusalem was established to glorify God. These Galileans that are spoken of here, relatively small group of people, and I do appreciate the media where they said, don't put this man who did these killings in Norway with a, a, a major group of people. This is a small, small group of people, and that's who we're talking about right here, whose blood was mixed with the blood of sacrifices. They were zealots. They were known as, as hotheads, 
most of the, the Jewish revolts against Rome came from this, this region. And as we come to today's scripture and we see them bringing this issue, evidently there had been some kind of uprising in Galilee. So Pilate sent soldiers into the area to, to, to police the situation. In the course of events, some of these Galileans were actually killed while they were making sacrifices. So while they were worshiping their God, and as a result, their blood got mixed with the blood of the sacrifice, this would have been a heinous thing to the Jew to think about a man's blood being mixed with a sacrifice being to God. So all this did is add to their hatred to, toward Pilate. But I'm suggesting to you that the people who are bringing this to Jesus are among the religious elite known as the Pharisees. And to the Pharisees, they were opposed to any Jew using force against Rome, so they would have said, based on what they understood, that those Galileans, and listen to this, it's very important, this is in the minds of the religious elite, and we're not aligning ourselves with them in any way whatsoever, they are proposing that those Galileans only got what they deserved, okay, for using force against Rome. So the point is those challenging Jesus want to see how he will respond to this idea that God punished these, and I put this in quotes, sinful Galileans for their violent actions against Rome. It's a controversial attempt to trap Jesus because if Jesus had ignored their question and what they're presenting to him, they could accuse him of, of being pro-Roman and therefore disloyal to his own people. Or, on the other hand, if he would have defended these Galileans and opposed Pilate's action, then he would have been seen as someone who's working against Rome, which would have given them cause to see Jesus arrested. Okay? So a very, very important thing going on that we have the religious leaders saying those Galileans only got what they deserve. They're issuing a judgment. Now watch how Jesus responds. And he always responds with a question. Verse 2, Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? So do you think that this was an act of God's judgment because these people were somehow worse sinners? Okay, hold on to that. This is how Jesus responds. I tell you, no, unless you repent. So what has he just done? He's put it back on these accusers. Okay. Unless you repent. He's putting it on them. What about you? Forget these Galileans. What about you in relationship with God? Hold on, hold on to that. Unless you repent, you too will perish. And then he gives them a flip side. Look what he does. He says, Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, there he is putting it back on them again, you too will perish. Okay, just an interesting fact, uh, the Pool of Siloam, the area that we are looking at today or that's being brought up here by Jesus today, uh, it was buried for thousands of years. In fact, it was just discovered again in 2004 when a water main broke in Jerusalem. When repair crews went in to make the repair on this water main and they were digging, they found something that they knew was of historical significance. So the broken water pipe became less of a concern than what they actually found. And it's, and it's this area that we're talking about today. So that's really cool. 
But Jesus goes to this current event that evidently all these people were aware of. Somehow a faulty water tower collapses, killing 18 of these Jewish workers who are helping Rome to dig aqueducts in order to provide water for the city. So Jesus says, on one side, you want to say that those Galileans who were killed were killed by God for opposing Rome. But Jesus says, hey, the same thing could be said about you by the Galileans that these 18 people were killed by God for supporting the Romans. It works both ways, folks. So I want you to notice this contrast. The people in the crowd, probably Pharisees, are proposing that radical Galileans were the worst of sinners, therefore they got what they deserved. And Jesus says, well, the Galileans could say the same thing about you because those 18 were killed for supporting Rome and therefore they got what they deserved deserved. Isn't that human nature? Huh? Always trying to validate ourselves by pinning the worst of crimes on someone else. Something terrible happens and we start to look for what atrocity they must have committed to have brought this upon themselves. They must have gotten what they deserved. And it'll be very interesting tomorrow to see what this shooter has to say about why he opened fire on those young people. And, and I can assure you that, and I'll say this with boldness and confidence, that it has to do with uh, Muslim infiltration into the nation of Norway and his efforts to try to stop this internationalization that's going on in our world where uh, Muslims seem to be taking over major parts of, of our world and therefore he's going to take actions against it. So he's going to say, I had to do this because it was necessary. So he made himself a judge. Okay? And this, this could be said of, of any atrocity that we've experienced in recent years. Those killed in the Twin Towers. Some would say that it was done because they were New Yorkers and they were worse sinners than you and me. They got what they deserved. New Orleans was hit by Katrina because of their terrible sinfulness. Japan was devastated by an earthquake and tsunami because this is a very unchristian region of the world. Cancer becomes a punishment for some sort of sin that people are experiencing in their lives. And in marriage, we hate each other and we can quickly point out what's wrong with the other person and therefore we're going to give them what they deserve. This is just human nature. We can go on and on with these kinds of things. And what we need to see right here is that Jesus denounces this concept saying no twice, emphasizing that whether a person is killed tragically in some sort of accident or disaster or illness or whether they are miraculously delivered has nothing to do with their personal righteousness in, in most of the time, typically. Human tragedies are not necessarily divine punishments and it's wrong for us to try to play God and to try to figure out what's going on. So, so the huge application here is instead of concerning ourselves with what everybody else must be doing to be in the positions they're in, we need to evaluate our own relationship with God continually. Because I assure you, there's room in this man's life for growth. And I'm certainly not in a position to find fault. In fact, here we are teaching through the Scriptures. Maybe you recall in our study of the book of Job that Job's friends made the mistake of trying to figure out what it was that Job had done to deserve the, the difficult set of circumstances he found himself in. Eliphaz, look what he said to Job in, in chapter 4 
verse 7. It says, Job, consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? You know, that is so ridiculous. Everybody dies, righteous or unrighteous. He goes on. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. Job, you only get what you deserve. But I love the way the story ends because God shows that Job was upright. And he says to friends like Eliphaz these words. Look what he says. This is chapter 42 of Job, the end of the book, verse 8. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. <laughs> yes. So let's beware of condemning others while always giving ourselves a pass. The Scripture is clear. All have sinned and fall short. There is no one who does good. And the wage of sin is, is death. Incidents such as these that we are talking about today are not opportunities for us to go around with a microscope and to try to figure out what everybody else is doing wrong, but rather they are opportunities for us to consider how fragile life is and that we will all face death and that we will all stand before a holy God. No one gets a pass. I love this. In 1651, toward the end of his life, activist poet John Milton became blind. So Charles II showed up. His father had been king of England but was killed at the height of the uh, English Civil War. So he pays Milton a visit, and this is what he says. Your blindness is a judgment from God for the part you took against my father. To which Milton said, If I have lost my sight through God's judgment, what can be said of, of your father who lost his head? Huh? It just works, doesn't it? It's always easier to talk about what someone else is doing wrong and to see what's wrong with everybody else than it is to see ourselves. Can I tell you this? In a fallen world, bad things do happen to good people. <laughs> if there really is a good person, because the reality of the word good is only a reflection of who God is. So contrary to the Eliphaz of the world, we will all stand before a holy God, the righteous and unrighteous alike. William Randolph Hearst refused to allow anyone to ever even mention the thought of death in his presence. Well, guess what? He died. <laughs> in fact, there are people dying in Estes Park who never have died before. Yeah, that's right. Hebrews tells us this. It is, it, it, it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, to face judgment. But there's great news, folks. Just because we all have to go through the door of death, unless, you know, we really hope for that rapture, because, man, it would sure be nice to skip growing old, right? And to skip any suffering that might come at the end. But, man, Jesus, just take us right out of here. That sounds really super. But even though we must all walk through that door of death, we don't have to stay dead. In fact, I'd like you to read with me uh, John 3.16. Let's read it together. This is the, uh, the, the New King James Version. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let's read John 11.25 together. This is Jesus talking. Read it with me. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me 
will never die. Do you believe this? And I could have eliminated that question, but man, it is so cool just to ask that question. Do you believe? So, in response to those who would accuse these radical Galileans of getting what they got for opposing Rome, Jesus says, no. In fact, if you look at the 18 who were killed, you could also say that they were killed for opposing Rome. And in both cases, Jesus wants them to know that is absolutely not an area we should be walking in. Instead, he turns it on each of us. And he says, consider yourself. Repent or you too will perish. So instead of being in the business of examining and pointing out what's wrong with everyone else, it would be best if we use that same energy to stand before God and recognize how desperately we are for Him to do a work in us and complete the work in us. Repentance seems to be an ongoing part of the Christian experience. Okay, (laughs) And if I ever get to the place where it's not a part of my life, you'll be the first to know. Okay, we're all on the same journey. Let's talk about this word repentance for just a moment because uh, it, it is an important word. It's a word that gets abused quite a bit and has been abused in the history of the church. First off, understand that repentance in and of itself it is not just about sorrow and sadness for some wrong thing that we've done. Repentance may involve that, but that, that's not enough. You can be sorry about something. It doesn't change a thing. Secondly, repentance is not penance. It's not some sort of voluntary suffering or action that we take in order to try to fix the wrong thing that we've done. All right? And what I just mentioned in and of itself isn't necessarily restitution, though restitution is a healthy part of repentance because when we've experienced repentance, truly, we want to go and make things right where they need to be righted. If we've hurt someone, we want to see healing in their lives. If we've taken from someone, we want to replace what we've taken. Third, repentance in and of itself is not reformation. You're not suddenly going to be a better person in all areas of life simply because you've somehow determined that it's time for you to change. And I love this statement. You can have some reformation without repentance, but you will never have repentance without some reformation. And that is very important. I'll explain to you why in just a moment. Repentance is the Greek word neo, which means to change one's mind or direction. And it's about something very specifically. And what it's about is recognizing that here is your heavenly father holding out his hands, wanting to love you and to bless you. But you're walking in a different direction. Someday I'll get serious about God. But right now, there's just too much life to be lived. And what repentance really is, is coming to grips with why am I eating what the pigs are puking up when my Heavenly Father has so much? And so really what repentance is, is coming home to your Heavenly Father who stands with open arms, which would be symbolized by Christ's death on the cross. Come home. Come home. I think too often the emphasis in repentance is focused on what it is that we need to get away from instead of what it is that we need to be coming to. 
And what that does is it puts it all on human effort. I've got to change. So people say, I won't even go to church because the roof will collapse if I show up. You know, I'm too bad to go with those people. And, and Satan has convinced us that it's about our need to change rather than it's about our need for God to change us. And that is really, really, really important to understand because, listen, if we could do it on our own, first off, that would totally undermine what Christ accomplished on the cross. Okay? We needed a Savior to die for us because we couldn't get right with God on our own. But secondly, Christians tend to live defeated and frustrated in their Christian experience because they've, they've said they're going to do all these things for God and then they start walking a little while and they find themselves defeated and frustrated. Why can't I live up to the things that I'm telling the Lord about and therefore I must not even be Christian at all? <laughs> and so the devil just loves it when the focus is on you turning from sin. No, just come home to your Heavenly Father and watch what, what He will do. In fact, if you, if you turn to your Heavenly Father, just by that action, guess what? Your back's automatically turned to a whole bunch of other stuff, right? And so now you've positioned yourself so that God by His power can begin working in you to change your life. Jesus doesn't just save. He begins the process of bringing us home to our Father, but Jesus also transforms. You believed in Him for the beginning of your faith. Believe on on Him that He will complete you. So by way of application, honestly, before you and God, do you find yourself going your own independent way? And are you experiencing the the frustration of doing life apart from God? Can you hear His voice? Turn around. Come home. Turn around. Come home. Don't hear my voice. Hear God's voice. Turn around and come home. You've been so good at pointing out what's wrong with the rest of the world, but now hear God's voice for you. Turn around. Come home. Okay, so as we get to verse 6, Jesus is going to continue building on this theme that we've been talking about. What is this thing that, you know, the Galileans could say that, the, that those Jews that were helping Rome were killed because they deserved it. The, the religious elite are saying that those, those Galileans who were killed were, were opposing Rome and therefore they deserved it. So everybody's judging everybody. Jesus says you can look at it from both sides. Instead, look at yourself. And so here's, here's the, the basis for looking at yourself, starting with verse 6, done in the way of this parable. <clears throat> so then he told them a parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Now here's grace. Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Very interesting what is happening here. And I've included on the PowerPoint Leviticus 19, 23 through 25, because according to Jewish law, if you were to plant a fig tree, you were not allowed to eat fruit from that fig tree for three years. In fact, the fourth year, you weren't even allowed to eat fruit. All the fruit was to be taken and offered as a sacrifice to God. So here we see that this tree has been given ample time to bear fruit 
and it's not bearing fruit. So the man just simply says, cut it down. It's time. It's had the time it's needed. Cut it down. Let's get rid of it. And let's plant another tree. Something like this, okay? Well, if you understand Scripture, the, the symbol of the fig tree always represents the Jewish people. Did you hear that? The symbol of the, of the fig tree always represents the Jewish people. Now, tell me this. Does anybody know how long Jesus has been teaching up to this point? Three years. You Jews, I've been with you now. I've been putting into you. I've been talking to you about faith. I've been talking about your need to get right with God for three years. And I don't see any fruit coming forth from your life. Instead, what I see is your tendency to try to ridicule me and to find fault with me. You are at the point where the blade is at at the base of your tree, ready to be cut down, but there's good news. You still have time. Okay? Now, God's intention was never for the nation of Israel to be judged in any way, but to bless them. But here they have the Messiah standing right before them, and they're trying to find cause to arrest them. And, and this is why some 40 years later, the nation of Israel will be totally destroyed. The temple will be just become nothing but dust. And here's the message. We must learn the lesson of the fig tree. In the Bible, fruitfulness is a requirement. You weren't, you weren't created to take up space. Okay, now I'm amazed. I, I wanted to write Psalm 1 here. I love Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates both day and night for he will be like a tree firmly planted by rivers of water which bringeth forth fruit in its season and everything he does will prosper. I love that. It was given to me by an old pastor, Reverend Bailey, when I was called in the ministry. And I love it. I love it. But look at this. I, I don't think I got it completely right, but that's all right. Praise God. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 7 and 8. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in Him. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when He comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worry in the year of drought and read the rest of it. You were created to bear fruit for the glory of God and not simply to take up time and space. And that's good news because it means you were created on purpose and you were created for purpose. But notice this. Jesus doesn't give us the end of the parable. He doesn't tell us what happened to the fig tree. Did the fig tree bear fruit? Did the, the extra attention that the tree was giving given help? Did it, did it help the tree so that it was able to turn around? Or was the tree, after the next year, chopped down? Jesus doesn't tell us. Why doesn't Jesus tell us? Because the question has nothing to do with the fig tree. But instead, the, the question has everything to do with you and me. Are we bearing fruit for the glory of God? That is the entire purpose of everything we saw today. Is God wants us to bear 
fruit. Okay, now I want to break this down a little bit, and I want you to see how and what God does to help a tree bear fruit. And I want you to see these things. First, He's going to give the tree more time. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us the heart of God when it says that God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come. And there's that word again, to repentance. Come home to God, okay? Secondly, He's going to dig around the roots. And we talk about this a ton around here. We even mentioned it this morning before the teaching that our ground tends to become fallow. We've been to church all our lives. We've heard it all. And and we get crusted over. And you know, when you pour water on dirt that's crusted over, the reason there's flash floods going on in Arizona during the monsoons right now is because the ground's crusted over and it just rushes right off the soil and and into the auroras, okay? And into the, what they call rivers in Arizona that typically don't have any water in them. And we in Colorado laugh at that. But this time of year, there's water in those rivers, okay? And what you've got to do is you've got to loosen up the soil. You've got to till it in order for the water to penetrate and the fertilizer to penetrate and proceed to get in the dirt, okay? So what's interesting is uh, the basis for our using this is Hosea 10, verse 12. And look what it says. It says, Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, For it is time to seek the Lord till He comes and rains righteousness on you. Now, did you notice who that was written to? It was written to us. And who does He put the responsibility on to to loosen the fallow ground? He puts it on us. Okay? So He wants us to consider the state of our soil. Okay? Very, very important. All right. Third thing. He wants to give it the nutrients that it needs, and that nutrient is expressed in fertilizer. Look what the Bible says. And Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 8.3 when He said, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Fourth, He wants to water us. And I know water is not implied in this parable, but it's just part of horticulture. We know that this is how things work, that things need water. And, and, this, and water always re- represents the Holy Spirit. The Bible says, Jesus said, in fact, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, streams of water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Now, <clears throat> I want to give you one more Scripture, because in the Scripture is everything you need to know about bearing fruit. Okay? This is John 15. I've taken some liberty to just give you some uh, sections of the Scripture that I hope will draw you to it so that you can look at it and see what it's all about. Jesus said, I am the true vine. My Father is the gardener. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch, and that's you and me, can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in Me. Verse 8. This is to My Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be My disciples. As the Father has loved Me, so have I loved you. Now remain in My love. Verse 16. You did not choose Me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit 
fruit that will last, then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Bearing fruit. I told you last week that when I was a young believer, a friend of mine developed a spiritual life inventory and I prided prided myself because I would take that spiritual life inventory just like I would take the ACT score, the ACT test, and I prided myself at how high I would score. And the longer I've walked with Christ, I've found the lower my score has become. (laughs) The closer I get to God, the more I realize how far from God I really am. And it's because as a young believer, I thought that I was determined enough to show the church how it's done. Yeah. And today I realize I have nothing. And if anything good is going to come from me, it's going to be because of my connection to Christ. I need Him desperately. And this is why, and for many other reasons, why the primary thing that we are about as a church is all eyes on Jesus. Because as long as they're on ourselves, nothing's going to happen. But when they're on Him, we will be amazed by the fruit. When the farmer plants a seed, he has no idea how the seed comes forth. And it's the same with us. It's the same with us. That, my friends, is God's Word. I would like you to take a moment with you and God. And I'd like you to consider why God brought you here this morning, what it is He wants you to know, and what it is He would have you to do.